Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Tēnā katoa and welcome into Trailblazers on SENZ. Well, today it's my pleasure to talk to one of the first cross-code superstars, Honey Hedemi Smiler. She has such a long list of achievements that people could only dream of after a 20-year representative career across league, union and sevens. Honey, thank you so much for joining us. Take us back to the very beginning in Putaruru and Waikato and paint a picture of what your childhood was like. Yeah, I, I love my little small town uh, upbringing in Putaruru. I used to be one of those kids or probably a teenager that couldn't wait to get out of there. But when I see myself now as a 40-year-old, I think, man, I had the, the bestest upbringing um, in Putaruru. I mean, we didn't have KFC, McDonald's, any of those kind of... Um, we had the, the local Chinese takeaway shop and um, and the BP pies. That was that, Those were our luxury foods. Um we had the rivers that were close and we spent a lot of time swimming in rivers. Um, but for me, I think the, the biggest thing about my time is we're a real tight-knit community and we had um, I had a huge family. Um, so just spent a ton of time there and, and sports was a big driver back home because you know there, there's not a lot to do back there. So we just we played a ton of sport. Everyone just played every sport that was available to us. And it was more your traditional sports, your rugby, your leagues, your, your netballs and, and things like that, basketball. So we just jumped into everything that we could, really. Okay, let's break this down. Let's start off with Fano and your family. Um, who was in your household? How many siblings did you have? How competitive was it? <laughs> yeah, so, so between my mum and dad, um, there's three of us, and I'm the, I'm the eldest. So I've only got the, the younger brothers, um, Two by blood, and then and then I had another little younger brother come along later, who's actually our cousin. He was kind of fun right in. So I was I was the bossy boots of the house and got to tell the little brothers what to do. And um and if they didn't, you know, then they they got a decent little slap around the ears or whatever it was. So I was that guy. I was I was the one telling everyone what to do. Um and you know boys will be boys. They just listen and and uh, not really question it. And so when it come to um, ensuring that they got the blame for everything, I was pretty good at that as well. Um, we um, but yeah, we we I suppose spent a lot of time with our grandparents as well. And our our upbringing was it, it was a little bit jagged, I suppose, in parts. We we did have a, a little bit of domestic violence and stuff like that in our family, which which did. Um, I suppose present some real challenging times for us growing up but I, I think as we got older you know our parents probably um, learned to cope with that a lot better and and alcohol was quite a quite I suppose present in our in our upbringing um, which didn't help the domestic violence side of stuff so um, but we sort of we I suppose we our parents kind of grew out of that as we got older as well so the the fear of a lot of what was going on as as younger children I suppose I took on a real protective role as well when it came to my siblings um, but it, it, I suppose it also made us um, 
I suppose, very aware of, of the community and, and the upbringing um, that we were raised in and that it was, it was probably deemed the normal back then. And it was just like, you know, I probably could go to school and knew that every other, um, a lot of other kids at my school were dealing with the same thing. So, yeah, we, I suppose we just, we just looked sideways to it all and thought that that was quite normal. But um, learnt a lot, learnt a lot through the, through some of those struggles and, and um, you know, have still have a great relationship um, with with my dad um, and in my and obviously my mum who's now passed. But you know, we still sort of we made it through those tough times, which was really important, and and still stayed quite close as a whanau. Do you think it's important to talk about this? Like, I obviously know you, but I didn't know any of that. And as you say, like, it was happening a lot in your area and probably in a lot of other areas in New Zealand as well, but people just don't talk about it. Do you think it's important to to talk about it so that um, we can all learn from it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I probably only started talking about it probably the last five years. And, and because you know, maybe doing a lot of interviews through media and, and as just, I suppose your sports profile grows and people say, oh, how was your childhood? And, you know, my immediate was like, oh, I need to be protective of that. But I've, I suppose I've I've learned, no, just be honest about it, you know. And so I probably hit it a lot because I didn't want people to know and, and I wanted to protect my whanau and, and my dad throughout that. But um, I think the more you speak about it, you know, there, there is nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and so... Yeah, I think people need to talk about it. And it's even these days, we still think that it doesn't happen a lot, but it actually does. Yeah. And it's still happening a lot. So the more like, you know, a lot of other different co-papa that you could talk about, it's there is still a lot of it happening. Um, and, and lots of kids are still growing up thinking that that's quite normal. Um, so I think if we can speak about it using, say, you know, the profile that we have, you know, it's going to it's gonna uh, trigger a, a young person to think, oh, okay, look, I'm going through this and maybe I can speak about it or, or approach someone and look for some sort of support if, that, if that's what's needed or or maybe just an inspiration like, okay, look, they've gone through it and they've made it through, yeah. um, whatever that might be, yeah. Okay, let's get into the sporting side then. You mentioned it, but uh, when you guys grew up, you literally played everything. Were you just out at the field and on the basketball court like every day? Was that your upbringing? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that was my my number one reason for going to school was sport. <laughs> and um, lunch? I, I, yeah, lunch, yeah. Struggled in the classroom, um, had a very limited attention span. So sitting in a, in a classroom reading books and things like that just, just wasn't what sort of, I suppose, captured um, my interest. But sports did, you know, so it kept me at school and it, and it kept me at school for uh, right through to two years in seventh form, which my brother always mocks me about. He always calls me the oldest the oldest seventh former at school because I keep going back for sport. Um, but, yeah, it was, and it, and it was for the whole community, though. And and, um, and I grew up with, like, you know, back home, when you, when you grow up in small towns, you see some amazing talent. And, you know, I could name 20 people in my local town that I thought, Man, they're going to be a, they're going to be an all black. They're going to be a silver fern, whatever it was at the time, because you just thought that they were amazingly talented. Um, I think what then you see is, you know, as you sort of get older is I look back and, and I think, man, why, sometimes I question, why did I make it? Why did I make it? And a lot of these people that I grew up with, they didn't quite make it or they chose a different path or, you know, they, they maybe haven't chosen the best path for them. And I don't really know what nails that down. Um, I think it's for me, especially in those small towns, it's just having that one opportunity that might have come through. And for me, that was, um, I threw myself into everything, as I, as I mentioned, but a, a lot of, um, I played with the boys right throughout. 
and probably when I got to about 15, I wasn't allowed to play with them anymore. And, and that broke me because I was like, this is all I've known, you know, and if I don't have an opportunity to keep playing, what do I do now? So I jumped straight into the women's game. And then it was just little opportunities that started coming up. Someone said, oh, come along to the Bay of Plenty Sevens Trials, come along to the Waikato, you know. And it was just all those little small opportunities that started to appear that I was just grabbing, saying, oh, yeah, I'll try that, I'll try that. And I think that was the difference was that I was actually willing to just try it. Um, wasn't too worried about the outcome. Didn't really have a plan like, yeah, I was going to be this New Zealand player or anything like that. I was just like, I'm just going to give it a go. And that's what I do. And, and <laughs> Funny thing is that a lot of the reason why I tried it was because, one, it got me out of town. And even if those were opportunities, like for us, the big weekend outing was to go to Tokoro to play sports because Tokoro had KFC. So we'd be like, yes, let's go to Tokoro because we know we're going to get KFC <laughs> on the way home. So, you know, it was just all of those little things and you piece them all together, you kind of figure out, yeah, that, that, that's kind of how the pathway, I suppose, unraveled for me. I was going to ask you about um, being a female in a, what was perceived, I guess, when you were growing up as a very male sport. But if you played with the boys up until 15, you knew no different. Yeah, absolutely. And I probably had to prove myself a lot more. Um, so I grew up with the boys and lots of those boys, like I look back at my under 10s rep photos and, I, and you know, there's still a handful full of those boys that I'm mates with, you know, and I think was just I knew that I had to work harder than them because I had to try and fit in with them and be a part of the boys group and things like that. And so for me, the only way I could do that was to play as good as them. So I made sure that I could play as good, if not better than them, so that I was, you know, I was being, I suppose, selected, um, not just by our coaches and things like that, mm -hmm. but that my teammates were actually selecting me too. And, and I suppose a real good gauge of that was that the boys would be like, oh, you know, if, for whatever reason I wasn't in the team, they were the boys were pushing, oh, how come Honey's not here this week? How come Honey's not playing this week? You know, we need Honey to play. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, sweet. You know, <laughs> like that gave me a real genuine insight. Like, yeah, actually I'm there because I'm. they think I'm a good player, not just because I'm, I'm the token girl being picked on the team. Um, so so that was huge for me. And I've probably had to use, I, I'm a, I suppose I've had a lot of areas in my life where I've, I've been in, in those different situations. Did you used to boss them around like you bossed your brothers around at home, be honest? I definitely transferred a lot of those skills, I would say. So good. Um, okay, so I think I read something. You started playing rugby league for your local club, the Putaradu Dragons, age five. Is that right? Is that where it all began for you? Yep, age five. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I do. I remember it clearly. I um, I remember like, I know that my brothers were in the team, um, and that I had asked. I remember asking my dad, "Could I play?" And he was like, "No, you're not playing. You know, you know, league's not for girls, kind of thing." And I was just like, oh, "Okay, whatever." And then he worked the following weekend, and I'm I'm pretty sure I remember was my uncle was the coach, and he had said to me to jump on the field. So I played, and I played really well. And then I remember my mum watched, and so I was like to her, "Mum, you've got to let you know, you've got to get dad let me to let me play, you know, tell him I'm good and da da da." And then eventually, I think he just came and watched and was like, "Oh yeah, she can handle herself." So I just let her go for it, kind of thing, and that's where it kind of all continued. So your dad saying that it was more out of him trying to protect you. Yeah, and I think it was just 
you know, it, again, like there wasn't, you know, I was the only girl on the team at the time. And, you know, yeah, he, he did. He did. I think he just wanted to protect me to be like, oh, no, you know, you go play netball and, you know, the girls do this and the boys do that. And, you know, you don't really get a, a choice, I suppose. But, yeah, he, he soon changed his mind pretty quickly. I was going to say, when he looks at everything that you have done over numerous sports now over the decades, he must just think like far out. You, you have paved the way for all these girls that have come through, you know. It's not just a girls playing netball, boys playing rugby. You can do anything. Yeah, well, my dad's a real avid rugby league player. So when I then got to about 15 and started playing rugby, he was like, oh, nah, not interested, you know. So so those same sort of, I suppose, you know, behaviours or old school thinking came out of him. He's like, no, you're either a rugby player or a league player. You can't be both kind of thing. It's like, okay, I was a girl and I couldn't play. Now I can't be both, you know. So because, you know, you, for, for him it was just rugby league, everything, you know. So, um and he, and he didn't, I must admit, you know, throughout my years in the, in the Blackburns and that, he didn't watch me play a lot of rugby. Um, he didn't mind the sevens. He thought it was a lot more interesting, but he just thought 15s was the most boringest game in the world, he would say. Um, so, yeah, he didn't, he didn't uh, wasn't too keen to jump on, but Matt, he followed me around the world for, you know, any rugby league I did. He was, he was on the plane and, yeah, he was, he was sitting in the stadiums, everything, yeah. You're listening to Trailblazers here on SENZ. Stay tuned to hear about Honey's Kiwi Ferns debut. Welcome back to Trailblazers on SENZ. Well, she's arguably one of the greatest to have ever pulled on the black jersey and Honey didn't even know playing for New Zealand was an option for women growing up. Yeah, I mean, it was it was probably quite a big surprise because I didn't even know that there was a Kiwi Ferns team, right? I didn't know there was a New Zealand women's rugby league team and I was probably... 16 years old and I was playing for the Bay of Plenty Women's and I went down to a Nationals um, in Wellington and um, after the tournament we, we got a hiding, we didn't have the greatest team but after it um, you know you went to the function, the social, whatever and then they picked this team and I was like oh what are, what are they picking these players for and they're like for the New Zealand team, I was like I didn't know they had a New Zealand team sort of thing I didn't know any of the players that they picked and then anyway, the next year I thought, okay, so there, there, there's this actual thing of a New Zealand team because never seen them on TV or knew anything about them. And so it was sort of two two years after that when I was picked after the Nationals, again, playing for the Bay of Plenty, we got a hiding. But then I actually started to see some of these girls who were playing, the the Trisha Heenas and the likes, and I thought, holy heck, these girls are amazing. And back then, Auckland and Wellington absolutely dominated Nationals. So I'd sit there and watch that final and think, far out man these players are amazing and then and then I eventually got picked in it and so yeah for me it was just a real eye-opener to to be sort of almost thrust into that you know that team that didn't I knew no, nothing about um and then you know you, you get picked straight after nationals then you're straight into a room everyone that gets picked and then you sign a form and then they talk to you about the drug-free sport and all the rest of it. And then here's the expectation of training. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is How this old is were huge. you at the time? Uh, I was 22. Yeah, so still still fairly young. I'd, I'd already been playing in the Māori, the New Zealand Māori Sevens team. Um, but a lot of the players in that team I had sort of grown up playing with. So there was a, a couple from Patararu. Uh, a couple of other players from Pataru and a lot of our Māori team at the time um, were picked um, from a, from our Bay of Plenty Waikato lot. So I kind of knew a lot of the players, the Vanessa Coots and things like that were all in there. 
Um, but yeah, this this whole Kiwi Ferns was just all brand new to me because I just didn't know it. You know, we didn't see them on TV or, or anything, so I was none the wiser. And what were your teammates like? Because had they been in that environment for quite a while? Yeah, a lot of the Auckland lot had been. Um, and, and it was awesome. Like, they were just straight away, you know, took you in, embraced you, and just, just really looked after. And, you know, you talk about the sisterhood, mm. and you just felt that straight away. And that's almost like, I think, what um, what captures you the most, what makes you think, I want to make this team again. I mean, not just, the you know, that they were a good team and that we're winning games. It's, that, it's more that connection, like, okay, I've grown up with this whanau, but now I've been selected into this this new whānau and so that's kind of what keeps you there and so from my first year I just had this amazing experience met all these awesome women and that played a sport that I absolutely love we had the same you know this the same passion for it so I was like okay I want more of this I want more of this and it's that whole connection that that just traps you in there and you just want you just want it more and more and, and that's with a lot of teams obviously in team sports you just you just want that connection Fast forward a year on from being selected, and is that when you became a mum for the first time? Yeah, it was. Yeah, totally unplanned. Um, my son came along, and um, and I remember being like, I didn't tell anyone right about my pregnancy. I mean, I told, I, I literally did not tell anyone. I, went I can imagine you were still playing. Seven. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I kept playing. I kept playing. Didn't tell anyone. Went away to the Hong Kong Sevens. And I was probably about eight weeks pregnant then. I told um, my best mate, Amy Turner, at the time, she played for the Aussie Sevens. Well, she was playing with me at that time in the Maldives. I, I mentioned to her, but only after we'd played the tournament, because she wondered why I hadn't gone out and celebrated with the team. And I, so I told That's her. That's not like honey. Then I didn't, <laughs> yeah. then I, didn't um, I, came, I came home, I kept playing rugby league and all of that. And by the time I decided to actually tell um, people that I was pregnant, I, I hadn't even gone to check on a midwife or anything like that. So my mum was like, "All right, you need a midwife," and so they took me. You know, I had to come up to Hamilton and get the scans and stuff like that. And they're like, "Oh yeah, you're 22 weeks," and I was like, "Oh my gosh," and I kind of had an idea. So, but I didn't realise I was that fun. And my dad's first thing was like, "You're not effing playing anymore. <laughs> you need to get off the field." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Did okay, you listen? Cool, Dad, so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was like, I had a little belly on me. I, I know, I remember the last game I played. It was down in Tukuroa. We played Pikiao. I remember getting changed in the changing rooms, and like I looked down, and I had like this little tummy, and I was like, oh geez, and I just kind of pulled my tights over and quickly threw the jersey on so no one would see. But um, yeah, that's not advice that I would um, recommend to any future mums. What was that like, though? That moment, I suppose, um, carrying a child's for nine months and then the moment that you actually have this baby you've got this boy in your hands yeah it was huge I think it was the first time I really enjoyed being pregnant once I stopped playing um and you know used the rest of my weeks to actually just enjoy the pregnancy I, I loved it eh? it, it allowed me just to rest my body um and then you know I have my son and then it just it just changes your whole world you just your whole world, I think, prior to being a mum is all about you and you know, and a, and a few others around you. But when you have this this little baby that you know that you're the sole um, protector of, it just changes your whole um, outlook. I think having my son matured me hugely, um, and then my whole world just became about him. You know, it was the first time actually falling in love with something other than yourself and it was just like oh well you know so then my whole philosophy on playing sport just changed it was all about 
I'm going to play for for my son for you know and that's just became I suppose my where I really I suppose understood what what value was and and what I wanted to play for and how important them family was because um because I then had to rely on my family to support me in terms of raising my son as a solo parent um to be able to continue to do my sport and and it was huge it was so huge how did you balance the two the training full-time to play in this national team to wear that Kiwi Ferns jersey, having having a baby as well, you know, and working. How did you balance everything? Yeah, I was I was a t- typical mum that had, you know, the baby on the side, you run off and, and go to quickly breastfeeding and run back on and, and all of that. I mean, my my son was 10 days old when I shot back down to um, nationals. I, I rang the Waikato coach and asked if I could join the team. And he was like, have you had the baby? And I was like, of course I've had the baby. And he's like, oh, when? I was like, 10 days ago. And he's like, are you sure you want to play? I was like, yeah, I really want to play. We were going down to Christchurch for nationals. And he's like, yeah, of course you can come. So I went and played because I wanted to I wanted to be straight back in and get reselected for the Kiwi Ferns. Um, but, yeah, I took took my son down and and just <laughs> just made made it you know got you just got through it kind of thing you just adapted as a as a mum you know and I was a new mum I didn't know a lot but I you know I'd lucky enough to to have family around me and they sort of helped guide me my mum was huge in helping me raise my son and sort of show me the ropes I suppose so did they end up having a pretty cool relationship yeah, they had a huge relationship, you know, right throughout, you know, from when he was a baby, um, right throughout, you know, his his whole life. I think um, it was actually interesting when uh, mum passed only, what, 18 months ago, 18, 19 months ago, my brothers actually sat me down and said, you know, you have to be a mum to your son now. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And they says, well, you've kind of always been the dad figure, you know, the the one that's sort of disciplined and, you know, you know you're know, you quite you know, disciplinary with your son. And and our mum was always like the mum, the soft-natured one and da 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 And I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And they were right, but they were absolutely right, you know. I was lucky that mum really mothered uh, mothered my son and it was she, she was always the softer one for all of us as well and whereas I was probably the more direct and like, no, son, you need to do this, this and this and then he'd just go and get, get it from my mum. <laughs> we're talking to cross-code superstar Honey Hidemi Smiler. Stay tuned, plenty more still to come. Listening to Trailblazers here on SENZ. Well, she had a career spanning two decades and such a long list of achievements, including four Rugby League World Cups in 03, 08, 2013 and 17. So what's the real reason why she kept coming back? I don't think you ever plan for that kind of stuff. I think, again, you know, I talk about that, that you you know, you you just strive to want that connection to be a part of that sisterhood, and that it's it's similar, you know, like test matches. I think are the pinnacle of of sports, right? And so when you experience one, there's like almost like that addiction that that um, you know that you just want it again. And so when I played in my first World Cup in 2003, and it was only my second year in the team. I was just like, oh, man, when's the next one, you know? And they're like, oh, four years. I was like, four years? Like, holy, um, you know? But I was like, no, I want that sort of thing. And I think we waited five for for whatever reason. It wasn't a pandemic, but whatever. We had to wait an extra year. But um, And then we won that one again. And again, it's just it's that addiction. Like, okay, I want to do another one, and I want to do another one, you know? And, and had things worked out, I probably would have done one more to try and do five. But it's just... Um, yeah, I think it all just feeds into it. It's just that it's like that constant chase for to I don't know for some sort of addiction that you have around 
um, playing in these World Cups and, and especially winning them because I, I never really went there just to play in them. I, I was never um, uh, an athlete that just participated. I was all in. I was all in to win, or I wasn't, or I wasn't interested, kind of thing. Um, yeah, that was that was always my philosophy. <laughs> I don't doubt it either. Um, do you have a favourite moment over the years from rugby league? Um, I do. I really enjoyed the 2008 World Cup. Like we just had the best uh, bunch of uh, women in that team, and it was probably a team where I could just genuinely say, you know, and and without the uh, sort of cockiness about it, it as like I knew we were going to win because I just looked across, you know, our whole sort of 22 squad and was like, man, these these players are amazing. You know, there's just no one in the world that can beat this team. We were we were that good. And um, and I think it was, again, just that whole culture that we had as well. And we went over there. And the, the reason it stands out for me, because one, it was in Australia and it was in, at Suncorp and we beat Australia, you know, and it was just, it just felt so good to beat them on their home turf because they had just, you know, media and, you know, Australian media. It was just all about the Jillaroos and, and that kind of feeling. And it was just like, I cannot wait to waste them you know so it just it just drove you more to really um I don't know to really make sure that we we went over there and we brought that world cup home it didn't matter because you know history had already shown that we were quite dominant but you know the the media over there just played out the Jillaroos like they had it in the bag and it was like oh man (laughs) far out so for like those first two world cups I know you're not going too far away from home but like, what did it take to actually get there? Because the sport's not professional at the time, right? Like, you're not getting the same treatment as our men are getting and the same recognition either. Yeah, no, nah, I mean, it took a whole lot. It took a whole lot of personal finance, that's for sure. You know, we, we forked out a lot to, to um, so you're pay out. So paying those out of your up. pocket? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think for my first one, um, my my parents did a lotto drop raffle, which was quite common, and just anything to to help pay the fees to get me there. And um, you know, I think I mean it was there wasn't a lot of support, so we just we did whatever we needed to do to get ourselves there. And vice versa, when we went in two thousand and eight, we fundraised a lot to get ourselves there, and um, we had a lot of backing in terms of the committee or the. At the time, we were separate from New Zealand Rugby League, so we almost had this, this separate group of New Zealand Women's Rugby League, and they were all women, in fact. And there's uh, Christine Parnipper and a few others of the likes that they drove this, and they had been driving it for years, um, the whole New Zealand Women's Rugby League, and so they were sort of a separate entity. What I liked about them is that they were all women. There was, I think, four or five of them, and that they did all the hard yards for us to, to get us overseas and things like that, so... I mean, that was really cool. And then eventually, um, I think New Zealand Rugby League, we then went under them. It was probably about 2000 and not long after that, actually, around 2009, 2010, I think. And going from the Kiwi Ferns environment to the New Zealand Women's Sevens program, when you first made your debut in that Black Ferns Sevens, was it World Series or was it World Cup? Uh, World Series, First tournament, geez, what was my first tournament? Oh, Houston, Houston, yeah. And, I mean, you'd already been playing sevens, right? You'd talked about it. You'd been playing Bay Plenty and Maldives and, and, and things like that. But what was it like um, in comparison to playing for the Kiwi Ferns now pulling on this different New Zealand jersey and a different code? 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was different in the sense of resourcing. So I walked into, um, you know, First Sevens camp, and I'd been a part of that whole wider squad um, with the Go for Gold and all of that, and um, knew a lot of the girls, and I hadn't made... There was a team that was... There was a 2000... I was picked 2000... There was a 2012 team that was picked to go to Fiji as in the first tournament, and then again in Dubai that year. And then I was picked for the first tournament in 2013. And I was a little bit frustrated, I think, with it because at the time I was still trying to balance the whole rugby and rugby league and I was getting a lot of, um, I suppose, a lot of feedback from rugby saying, look, you need to quit league and we'll, we'll we'll pick you kind of thing. And I was just like, well, no one's offering me anything and I'm paying for it all anyway, so yeah. no, nah, I'm not going to quit league kind of thing. Um, anyway, eventually I get picked in uh, to go to Houston in 2013 for my first World Series uh, tournament and just straight away the resourcing you know like they had us in the twin towers and the mount versus for league we're staying in marais you know um the the kit that we're getting um the payments and all of that kind of stuff you know straight away there was just a huge difference um were you shocked by resourcing. that no i probably wasn't shocked because we were sort of already aware of what you were going to get if you made the New Zealand Sevens because we had sort of been a part of this wider squad, but it was only the travelling team at those times that we were getting some of these benefits, I suppose. Um, so I wasn't shocked by it, but but there was a huge difference in terms of comparison between the two. Um, and I think really that's the the gap between the two has, has probably... Um, has probably, you know, really reduced now um, and, and probably only the last five years, really, the, the difference in, in the resourcing with the two games and things like that. When did you pick up your first contract? It was with Sevens, right? Semi-professional yeah, so contract? That, yeah, I was part of that first group. I think the whole, there was uh, 20 of us, I think, that picked up the first sort of part-time uh, contracts that we all were offered. And I think it was in 2002. It was straight after the World Cup, pretty much, when we all... Um, that, so we won the 2013 Sevens World Cup, and then it was straight after that they signed our first 20 or 22 of us, I think, that got those first lot of contracts. And what was that like? Like, after you've been fundraising, your whanau's fundraised almost your entire life to get you to tournaments, whether it was regional tournaments, national tournaments, international events, and you finally were getting to see, like, some money for what you were doing. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> It was really special, you know, to to actually sit there and actually sign a contract and be like, oh, wow, like I'm actually deemed a professional now because I'm signing a piece of paper. Although to me, I had always thought I was a professional because I was wearing these black jerseys. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's like society didn't deem you professional until you actually got paid for it or whatever it was. But um, I, I suppose so it was really special. And I suppose you uh, for the, that whole group of us, we all probably thought, there was a lot of, um, I think, the general feeling amongst us was that, man, we were so grateful to the people that had gone before us and paved that way, you know, because we knew that without the hard work that they'd done, and especially the Black Ferns 15s, you know, because 7s had kind of come in and, and railroaded a lot of that hard work that was done in the 15 space, and then all of a sudden these 7s girls are getting the, the first lot of contracts. So um, with that came a lot of pressure, uh, you know, a lot of pressure. Like, okay, now we're we're always going to be a part of this first group to get contracts, and so that comes with a lot of pressure. Like, we've got to live up to this, and and there was still a, the feeling around it was like it didn't really matter how much the contracts were worth, but it was like 
you just be grateful for what you're what you're getting given kind of thing there was there was also that feeling as well and absolutely we were we were just to I suppose be those trailblazers if you like to 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 be in that first group of contracting players what made you um I suppose want to move from league into sevens and then into 15s into that Blackfern side yeah I didn't know I never really had a plan to play 15s um and it was, I think, through the sevens, then the coach of the 15s actually just got a hold of me and said, look, are you interested in coming along to the trials and things like that? And I, and I knew that I'd been playing well, and I thought, oh, yeah, you know, if, if he's if he's encouraging me to to give it a go, then, yeah, I will. And I, I, had, I had trialed for the Black Ferns earlier during my league league days, and I had, um, and the, the feedback that I'd gotten back then from from the rugby side of the the selectors for the Black Ferns, and I was quite young back then, um, was it's rugby or league, you can't do both. And when Why? I was given that information, I don't know, it was just, a, there was just, a, you, you could not do both. So as soon as they said that to me, I was like, fine, I'm picking league, you know, I, I was so, I just kind of turned my back on the 15s. I was playing Waikato and I loved that, but I never really had aimed towards the Black Ferns because I knew that, well, because at the time the, the, the people in those positions had made it very clear to me. So I was like, okay, that's fine. And then obviously you fast forward a few years after that, and then they're like, oh, do you want to come and troll? You know, we're, we're keen. So I was like, okay, cool. So, yeah, that was probably came as a, as a bit of a a shock turn. It wasn't something that I'd planned for. Um, and so when I got selected in that, and that I was, I don't know if I could say, but I, I thought um, I was the oldest uh, debutant ever in history to make the Black Ferns. I don't know if that's true, but I was pretty old by then. How old were you when you made your debut? I think I was 33. So. 33. Coming up, we talk love, loss and legacy with Honey Hedemi Smiley here on SENZ. Welcome back to Trailblazers on SENZ. Well, Honey Hedemi Smiley grew up wanting to be a warrior and in 2018, the NRL announced there would now be a women's competition. Uh, man, I, I had always dreamed to be a warrior, mm. you know, never ever thought it would happen. And so I was quite, um, we came out of the 2017 World Cup and then there was all this talk about, you know, NRL for women's and it was like, what the hell, you know, sort of thing. And then, yeah, and I, I, honestly, I was just like, I want to be a warrior straight away, you know, because our family a real hardcore Warriors fans, you know. Next year's it will be our year. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I was blown away by it and excited. And but then I was sort of conflicted because I was still sort of um, with the Black Ferns and sort of on the fringes with Sevens. And so I was like, oh man, all of this is happening. But for me, as soon as I knew there was an NRLW, I was like, right, this is what I need to do. I knew I was ending my career anyway, but I thought I'm gonna, I'm not gonna end it before I become an NRLW player because I'd planned to retire. I mean, I had planned to retire about 10 times throughout my career. But after that 2017 World Cup and we lost, I was like, oh, I'm done, you know, like um, I think I was 37. And I'm like, look, you're 37, you know, you've done everything, you know. And then they said, oh, NRLW. I was like, oh, no, I'm in. <laughs> Straight away, you know, there goes the retirement plans out the window. I was like, oh, no, I need to get, in, get into this walker, so you straight away that that just opened up a pathway for me I knew it wouldn't be a long one but I gave it a crack anyway when you talk about your career like what kept you going for so long I suppose first and foremost I think just uh um for me it's always been I'll stay in it if I know I'm learning and I know um I can keep getting better mm. sort of thing I, I always get really bored if I join a team 
and I'm not learning anything, you know, or, you know, and I've had, I've probably experienced that a lot, whereas I get into a team, especially in these later years, and they're just like, oh, honey, you take the team, oh, honey, you take this, or you take that, and I'm like, I'm here as a player, and I'm here to learn, so (laughs) I'm not just here to to do your job as a coach or or something like that, I want to learn too, and and don't get me wrong, you know, I've taken on a lot of roles where I've been the player coach, um, because that's that's taught me a lot, you know, how to manage that balance and, and coaching skills and things like that but for me it's always been that that drive to want to learn more and want to do better and and how far I could push myself and how better I could get um which then when I knew I, I suppose you know people talk about reaching their peak and so I always thought oh yeah when I was 30 oh yeah I'm at my peak now because you know I'd read all the the stuff online and people say oh athletes reach their peak at 30 years old and um you know and then people will talk about Richie McCaw and him and I are still the same age and they're like oh Richie's at the peak of his career and I was thinking oh that must mean I'm at the peak <laughs> of my career kind of thing so I'd, I'd probably almost have those comparisons um but yeah then I just and then I got better and and because we had a lot of testing and things like that especially in the sevens and I remember our trainer Matt Critz at the time he said to me oh, you're a bit different, honey. Usually people don't get faster as they get older. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, but you're definitely getting faster. I was like, oh, cool. (laughs) So I started to kind of chase that and want to like really push myself that way, the physical and the mental side of it. We've always known you as honey head of me, but becoming a smiler, what was that like for you? Yeah, that was cool, eh? um, We sat down and talked about, you know, who's going to take whose name or are we going to hyphenate? And how we actually made the decision is we just said our names out loud and sort of thought, okay, whose surname goes first? And the honey hitame smiler flowed a lot better than honey smiler hitame. So we're like, okay, that that solved that problem. But um, I was awesome, you know. It's funny, actually, because obviously we just had our two-year anniversary and I was just saying to my wife, I was never a person that, um, saw marriage and you know and my my outlook in terms of life and that I just thought ah marriage is not for me and you know I'll, I'll have a great relationship but I probably won't ever get married and so um, yeah I, I've just I suppose fallen in love with the idea because you know I do have such an amazing uh, partner and and our uh, almost like our uh, our companionship, but also our we're, we're like best friends, you know. And it's like, man, I get to do this for the rest of my life, you know. I don't have to go looking anywhere else or anything like that. And so it's it's just been amazing. And again, it's one of those milestones in life where you learn and grow from it. And, and relationships, you know, it's, don't you know they they can be tough, but you also learn and grow together. And that's what I like. And now I've got this life partner that I can go through all these ups and downs and highs and lows with, and I can do it with somebody else. You know, so it's it's huge. I think it's it's amazing. I love it. You your your wedding was pushed forward, and you've already touched on it um, a little bit. Um, and if it's too hard to talk about, I completely understand. But there was a reason why uh, you guys got married earlier than you wanted to, and that's because um, your mum got um, very sick and very quickly as well. Um, what sort of impact did your mum have on your life? Yeah, she had a huge impact on my life. And, and I, I can like really freely talk about mum now. And, and I suppose it's part of that whole grieving process. Um, and for me, I just I just think far out, you know, you don't realise these things until, you know, until now she's gone. And I just always, I suppose I never envisioned that I wouldn't have mum in my life. I don't know why, I just didn't. And then when now that I don't, you know, I can reflect back and think, far out, mum was a huge part of my life. And I never really realised 
um, how much. But I just, um, yeah, mum got really sick really quickly. And, you know, I just went into, I suppose, um, autopilot in terms of caring for her because mum had lived with us here in our home uh, for probably the far past five years. And so we had become really, really close in that time. And so when she got sick and she was, you know, and it all happened really fast, she went straight into palliative care. For me, autopilot just switched on and I was just all in, you know, it was, it was just like... I can't compare it to playing a game, but, you know, my the same mentality that I take into a game about being all in, that's how I was going to be in terms of caring for my mum was going to be all in. So I quit absolutely all the responsibilities that I had going. And I had obviously two jobs. I had my Halberg job and my Sky and, um, you know, I was signed with the Warriors and I was coaching here and, and all of that. And I wouldn't say I quit at all, but I just put absolutely everything on hold to care for mum and become like a full-time you know carer for her and um and I did that because I never wanted to live with the regret of not doing it and I wanted to be all in for mum so I needed to um put aside all the distractions to ensure that I could care for her and it was it was it was a nice way I suppose to um spend those final well we only had really weeks you know there's seven eight weeks with mum but you know I can I can honestly I suppose look back at that time and think I'm grateful that I had those times. You know, other people, they don't get that time. And although it's tough to see the suffering and, and everything that um, she had to go through, you know, I would, I'm still grateful that I got that time with her and, and that I was able to be the person and the daughter that I think that she would have loved for me to be because she just, you know, she, I knew that at, right throughout that time that she, I, that's where I needed to be and that's where she wanted me to be. So, yeah, it was cool. It was real cool. Also, uh, along with the massive list of achievements, and honestly, we don't have enough time to talk about everything that you've achieved on and off the field, um, becoming a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. <laughs> Did you yeah, that? yeah, that was interesting. Um, I never really knew what that whole what that whole uh, thing meant, and it was um, it was actually when I came back um, straight after Mum's funeral. Actually, is when I got the letter. Mm. And it was like all in this big flash envelope and all of that. And I read it and I was just, I was in tears straight away because my first initial reaction was like, wow, I've just been, you know, um, awarded this thing. And it's like literally, I think it was eight days I received it after we'd buried mum. So I was just like in tears, like, why did this have to happen now? And, you know, I would have loved for her to have been here. But then, yeah, I, I suppose once it all sunk in and then, um, the pandemic hit, so we only actually got to have the ceremony this year. Uh, but yeah, it was it was awesome. Just yeah, a huge. I, I don't know. It just puts, um, I suppose, a little bit again, like like other. There's a little bit of pressure on your shoulders, but it's just a massive acknowledgement to think to myself, man, I've I've come a long way from being this kid that you know got suspended from school to being a real riffraff to now you know having a New Zealand honours makes me just feel super proud. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, when you look back at everything that you've achieved, like 40 years of sporting achievements, heartbreak, all the injuries, the training, um, your whanau, your son, what what comes to mind? Um, yeah, I suppose in one, um, I don't know, I think I just, I'm really proud um, 
I'm really proud of, I suppose, who I am and, and I suppose my cultural heritage and the values that I've learned throughout that sort of thing. And, and I always bring everything back to whānau and family and how that is how, how I suppose everything that I've, I suppose, achieved and, and even all the things that I've done in my life that I'm not proud of, it still all reflects back on family. And, and that's for me will always, I think, for the rest of my life, be a number one driver, number one value um, and everything that I suppose I I wrap my life around um, will be that will be that sense of value and culture and and just to be proud of it and, and keep striving for it too I think. Honey, thank you so much for giving up your time and talking to us here. We really do appreciate it. You are a trailblazer in every sense of the word, a pioneer in your fields, and you've paved the way for many women and girls for years to come. That's for sure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Trailblazers on SENZ.